Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Crash and Ride podcast. I'm Patrick Ferguson. I'm your host. Today's guest is James Hall. James Hall is a multi-instrumentalist. He plays keys, guitar, and trumpet. He's a singer. He's fronted so many bands. Pleasure Club, Marry My Hope, the James Hall band, Steady Wicked. Like He has just been out there grinding for 25, 30 years. He never stops. He's always playing somewhere. He's always got a new record on the back burner somewhere. He's really extraordinary guy and he's a good friend of mine and man his story is pretty captivating i've already interviewed two members of his band sterling roig the drummer from the james hall band and grant curry bass player from james hall band but also pleasure club and his work with james off and on for 25 30 years it's really really good to be back from the holidays like i've been back for about a week and a half two weeks now and i'm trying to get back on schedule here get my releases out on time um and i'm on the very verge of getting caught up, but thanks for bearing with me. Uh, thanks for supporting Crash and Ride. If this is your first episode of Crash and Ride, if you're coming over from the Dopey Podcast, because we had an ad on Dopey this week, um, I'm a big fan of Dopey Podcast, and Dave and I talk every couple of weeks just to catch up, and I was like, man, I'm going to put an ad on your podcast. He's like, you should do that, so I did it. Um, welcome. Uh, Crash and Ride is a long-form interview podcast where I talk to musicians who survived anxiety, depression, and addiction. The idea was that if we could have honest and open conversations about the things that bother us and the sadness that we feel, we could start to get better. It's really that simple. I also do every other podcast. I do a song explication where I go from end to end in a song that I love, and I talk about like the personnel on the session, where it was recorded, when it was recorded, like some of the cultural context around it, and maybe some of the musical stuff. I play a little guitar. I'm mostly a drummer. Um, but, you know, I do my best to like hammer at it and trying to point out some melodic motifs or some ideas that are in the song. Um, those episodes are going to go behind the paywall at some point. I haven't really gotten around to figuring out how to do that technically. So if you're still enjoying those episodes for free, uh, you know, it's, that, that's going to come to an end at some point. Just this last week, I did an explication of the song Quiet Whiskey by Winoni Harris. And I, I, I would love for you to listen to that because it's, uh, it's about a jump jive performer named Winoni Harris who most people don't know. What are you doing? My my dog is absolutely refusing to not be in my lap right now, and it's hilarious. I'm in an inexplicably amazing mood. I can't even begin to tell you why that is because it's just a normal Tuesday night for me. But I am in just a really good place right now, and my dog apparently has picked up on it, and now she is standing on me. Babe, you gotta you got to chill out for like five minutes. All right. Come back later. Bye. <laughs> All right. A couple of quick announcements. Crash and Ride is brought to you in part by Greer Amplification. Greer Amp spills the best boutique effects pedals available. If you're looking for an overdrive, boost, fuzz compressor, or tremolo that is rugged, road-tested, and at home, on stage, in the studio, or in your living room, Greer has a pedal for you. Nick and his staff strive to build the best products around with the best tone you've ever heard. They believe in their products, and they stand behind them, too, backing each one up with a lifetime warranty to the original owner. Each Greer Amp's product is hand-built in Athens, Georgia, USA. Go to www.greeramps.com or visit your favorite music retailer, today as i record this i think nick is at the anaheim nam show unpacking the booth for greer amplification so if you're at the nam show swing by the greer amps booth and say hi to nick and tell him you heard about him on crash and ride crash and ride is also brought to you by jittery joe's a local coffee roaster based in athens georgia they have a special espresso blend named after the podcast you can get crash and ride espresso off our website at crash and slash store I'll send it to you whole bean or ground. You just got to let me know. I also have T-shirts up there in blue and black. They have the Loud Guitar Save Lives slogan on them with the big Crash and Ride logo. They're 20 bucks plus $5 shipping. That's CrashAndRidePodcast.com slash store. I am in such a good mood. This is the weirdest thing. Just had a cup of tea. 
Maybe it's the tea. I don't know. Man, I feel great. And I'm having like a pretty garbage week. We bought a car, as I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago. The engine's already got a rod banging in it. It's probably going to need to be rebuilt. I took it back to the dealer. Fortunately, it was CarMax, and I got like 90 days. But I was like, what the hell, you guys? What, what the fuck? It's uh thing is already fucked up. I mean, I guess we'll get that sorted out. Like, for some reason, that's not even like piercing my like happy bubble right now. I don't know what's come over me, but I'm in a good spot. Um, So... James Hall. I've known James in passing for like 25 or 30 years. I've known the guys in his band really well. We were all on the road at the same time back in the 90s. We crossed paths all the time. I love Grant, his bass player. I love Sterling, his drummer. James has always been this larger-than-life figure, very much the sort of pure rock and roll icon, and I didn't really get to know him that well until this year. Um, He's done some solo shows with Bruce, who's a sort of collaborator and 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 lead guitar player and together they're just magical and i got up on stage with them last time they played here and we we played a couple songs together and it was great it was then that i was like hey man you should come do a crash and ride interview and he said yes so the other night i left here and the absolute just pissing rain and drove to his place in atlanta we sat down in the sort of extra room and talked for a couple of hours and it was a really good talk We talked a little bit about his early life and about relocating to Nashville when he was just a kid. And we talked about his record deal and how Katrina completely displaced him and about being a dad and being a rock guy at the same time. And it was a really, really good talk. And I'm really glad we got to get together. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Let's jump into our interview with James Hall. Okay, I'm here with James Hall, lead singer of the James Hall Band, also lead singer of the band Pleasure Club, uh, formerly of Mary My Hope many years ago. Welcome, James. Thank you. Uh, you've been pretty busy lately. I have. I stay in motion. Yeah? Yeah, I do. Got some Pleasure Club shows coming up. Got Pleasure Club shows coming out. Got Ladies Of shows coming out. I have a, a band that's kind of largely based loosely from Alabama and Tuscaloosa, too, as well, that gets together and does shows. Um, I've got a Steady Wicked record that's out as of um november so all right because it's a couple of bands that i didn't mention in the intro so let's tell me everybody you're playing with right now okay uh i am actively playing with pleasure club uh got a ep uh released with them i've got a band here in town in atlanta called steady wicked Mm -hmm. and steady wicked has just put a record out in november and um i've got a uh a, a band of musicians that I work with called Ladies of, mm-hmm. and that is largely based in um, in Alabama. Although we've got com- you know two guys that are here in Atlanta. Uh-huh. How many people in that band? There's about six of us. Wow. And then um, and that there is a kind of a splinter cell in New Orleans still too left over that I like to uh, get together and play with too when I get down there. Yeah. So. The for Scott Wyland. Uh, once and what band was that? That was, I believe, that was the Greater Vavoom. Right. Yes, that was the Greater Vavoom, and that was fun. That was kind of recruited, uh, in the words of Mark Donnells, the guitar player in that particular group. He says, "I lost a bet, and so therefore I had to join their band." <laughs> um, and uh, but that band was a lot of fun, and it was actually a really good thing for me at that time, um, playing kind of gospel organ for kind of a disco group. 
yeah. you know, or a dance kind of. That's feature. exactly how I remember it. Yeah. So I was there. I, I know Doug, who was the musical director uh, for Scott Weiland's band, and he quit, I think, two years later because the situation had gotten so toxic and mm-hmm. crazy. And it wasn't long after that that Scott left us. Okay. Is Doug the kind of responsible-looking one with the beard? <laughs> a friend of mine called called him. He looks like evil Dr. Goodtone up there. Okay. okay. Uh, but he does have a beard. He usually played in a suit. And uh, I think he played either Travis Bean or an electrical guitar company, aluminum neck guitar. Yeah. Outstanding musician. And I don't remember too much about, you know, Wyland's performance at that show, but I remember... I remember... Uh, Dr. Goodtone. The evil Dr. Goodtone, yeah. <laughs> His guitar always sounds unbelievable, whatever he's playing. I've seen him play like an ES-335, I think, live, and I've seen him play a couple of aluminum neck guitars, and every time I see him, it's just like astonishing. It's what's in the hands and in the heart. Yeah, no, it's true, and he is an amazing guy. So you first sort of came on my radar and Mary My Hope back in the 90s. Um, but before that, you were in Tennessee, right? I was in Tennessee, yeah. I was in Tennessee from about 1976 to 1986. Where were you born? Houston, Texas. Harris oh. County. Um, Sterling, the drummer in the James Hall Band, was also born in Houston, wasn't he? He was also, yeah. He was you guys didn't same, know each other? Didn't know each other then, but I mean, we were growing up pretty close to one another because both of us were in that kind of Clear Lake City build-out. Mm-hmm. Uh, late 60s early 70s when you say clear lake city built out was that like a suburb or something suburb yeah yeah and it was pretty much at that time an oil town right it was and really kind of largely still is it's oil and then um enron i guess too so yeah (laughs) so what did your folks do uh my dad actually was a had a master's in engineering um from the university of oklahoma and um he was in into aerospace engineering. Uh, he worked for NASA as a subcontractor through Martin Marietta, and um, and my mom was in nursing school and was a practicing nurse. And uh, they met in Houston and got together there and had me and uh, moved into the neighborhood that I largely grew up in in in, in Houston. Um, my dad. Got laid off, I think, in 74, 75 again uh, by General Electric and was kind of weighing his options at that point on, as to whether or not to stay on in Houston or to move off. And um, I mean, oddly enough, uh, Sterling's dad was also in oil and uh, I believe ended up going and working in Saudi Arabia. And that was in the conversation in our, in our home, too, as well. Um, oh, really? Saudi Arabia was on the table? That was on the table. Um, of course, I mean, I, you know, being a kid in that time in 1975, I can't really imagine what the prospects looked like for somebody that was, you know, in his early 30s, like my dad was at that time, and kind of trying to trying to keep a family on track and and keep some security going. Um, but he, uh, in his search for work, he. Uh, met somebody who was uh, working in um, in Nashville for Tom Frist's company, Hospital Corporation of America, and so 
that seemed like a good company that he went in and worked for as an engineer initially there. So you lived in Nashville as a child? Yes, I moved to Nashville when um, I was probably seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was a you know a bit of an adjustment to as well getting um, you know just kind of uh, acclimating to the uh, kind of from the Texas slang to uh, to the Tennessee slang. That's a big change. That was really kind of crucial time in your life. Yeah. The uh, um, yeah a couple things I remember is um, you know asking where the the bathroom was. And uh, my classmate saying, "Oh, you mean the commode?" And, uh, and, <laughs> and pointing the way. Yeah. And then the other thing was um, when he uh, saw my my brother, um, who didn't look like me, but he asked because he saw us together, and he asked, he's like, "You and him, Ken?" Right. And uh, and I'd never heard that <laughs> before. You and him, Ken, and I guess maybe it was the first kind of like awareness of how important context is in terms of on understanding yeah you know because he was pointing at my brother and and my brother and i were together and this kid knew me from the classroom you know okay that must mean kin must mean related or brother or something (laughs) how many how many siblings do you have i have two other siblings i've got a sister younger than me and then um uh, another sister adopted way younger than me oh you have an adopted sibling Mm, two Two, yeah, both my brother and my and my youngest. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you're you land in stranger in a strange land in Tennessee. Yes. And you have to make the all the commensurate adaptations to your new life. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle with anxiety, and depression as a kid? Um, not that I know of, and I don't. I don't know that I really struggled with that until later yeah if i if you know if i'm gonna talk about that at all that would be considerably later at least my awareness of it was yeah. later. well so i guess i was looking back through old episodes today because i was uploading some stuff to the new youtube channel which will be up soon but i remember in episode 16 i talked to a guy named patrick nahoda who was a wilderness firefighter out in california and is a great singer songwriter now based in nashville and he had been an EMT for years, and he said, kids don't know what anxiety is, but they will tell you, my stomach hurts. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay, I had a lot of that. Did you? <laughs> and even in Houston, um, I really did. Um, just kind of adjusting to being at school. And, and I, <laughs> first day of school, oh, my mother and father were lovely and practical, but they put me in a nylon turtleneck and polyester um, checkered pants for my first day of kindergarten in 1974 or something like that. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, if this is what school is, I can't be part of it. (laughs) Because it's Houston and it's late August or early September. So you must have been roasting. I was roasting. I looked yeah. good, but I was roasting. Yeah. <laughs> tough skins. Remember tough skins? Yes. I wore tough skins until, little known fact, but I wore tough skins right up till high school. Man. I wish I could find a pair of those now. They're tough. Yeah. I don't remember them being particularly comfortable, but when I buy 501s, like, 
I buy the like hardest ones they make. You know? Yeah, they it's they were tough. They had just enough polyester woven into them to keep them, you know, like uh, some of the fashionable pants that that musicians wear. Right. Oddly enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I remember a lot when I was a kid, just like bailing out of class to go to the school nurse because my stomach hurt because you know my family was flying to pieces <laughs> and um not really having any kind of way of manifesting it other than to say like my stomach hurts yeah yeah when did music become a part of your life uh that's a good question i had a little bit of an awareness of music from the transistor radio that was kind of in the neighborhood and so you'd be a kid walking around with a transistor radio on it and listening to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road or um, I Shot the Sheriff by Eric Clapton. Yeah. Um, and um, and then my mother did have uh, uh, Jim Croce's album, and so we heard that and remember hearing Roller Derby Queen and Bad Bad Leroy Brown and mm -hmm. Time in a Bottle and things like that. So those things did speak to me and then I guess occasionally my mother and father really weren't active listeners but occasionally a babysitter would be at our house and put on mamas and the papas or something like that and kind of listen through whatever my mother and father had and that was pretty exciting at least for me it, it certainly perked my ears up but it probably wasn't until I was in Nashville that um, about after about a I don't know even within that first year of being in Nashville, that that uh, the Spinners had released Rubber Band Man and Working My Way Back to You and and things like that happened, and, and those songs were really compelling to me. When did you start playing? I um, was able to, uh, and then this is kind of a funny thing. So I, after about a year being in Nashville, there was a classmate with blonde hair who was talking kind of almost obsessively about this entity known as KISS. And um, and I just, I didn't even know what what it was. I had no context for this KISS. And then he opened up his notebook and he had drawings of the face makeup of this entity known as KISS. And he's like, oh, it's like a rock group. It's like, oh, a rock group. It's like, yeah, like music. Oh, so at some point I got permission to go and, and, and spend time at his house and stay there for the day. And I don't really remember too much about Kiss, um, but I do remember Diamond Dogs. And I remember hearing Rebel Rebel. And that, <laughs> that was a pretty big explosion for me, um, just how catchy that song was. I mean, I listen to it now and it's like, okay. Kind of a Rolling Stonesy kind of thing, and yeah. um, you know, don't play any bass until the chorus, you know. But uh, but that song uh, really, really caught my eye, and uh, and then you know, and then kind of also the artwork on yeah, the, the artwork uh, on the Diamond cover Dogs that record too. is pretty wild. Yeah, Kiss. It was still a little bit of a disconnect for me, um, and I, I mean. I don't necessarily know that I still 
I mean, I'm trying to think, have I been influenced by KISS? I must somehow have been influenced by KISS. But it still strikes me, I think that the, even then, the music just sounded like... <laughs> like explosions and dragon sounds, you know, right. or dragon slayer sounds. And so it, I just, you know, it was missing something. But it wasn't too long after that that um, I got to middle school and, and I had a, a classmate, this guy, Alan Green, that was a keyboardist and great you know despite his really young years and um and so through him i finally heard Jimi hendrix and you know i know that you know listening to Jimi hendrix on a on a cell phone can be you know compelling i guess you know a little cell phone speaker or whatever yeah. but hearing Jimi hendrix play on a children's record player sounded like an animal just about it was just caged inside of that thing. <laughs> yeah. It was just so wild. Do you remember what songs you heard? Oh, we heard Foxy Lady and, and we heard Purple Haze. And um, I mean, it was probably, I mean, smash hits had just come out. So, you know, they'd kind of done a greatest hits, right? Yeah. And so we were, we were listening down to that, Wind Cries Mary. All that stuff, and but it it was hearing that, and then hearing Talking Heads, and hearing the Cars, and not really having any hierarchy or context for the time in which this stuff was released. Like hearing "Damn the Torpedoes" to me was absolutely as good as hearing, you know, "Purple Haze." Right. Because I didn't. All of it was great. There was no gatekeeper in your there, life at that point. There was no gatekeeper. Right. You're just getting records. And and no big brother to say yeah you should hear his early stuff you know right 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 it was just all new every neighborhood had that kid who had all the records all the Kiss records it was oh, always man, that like, what an enviable I mean for the artwork alone what an yeah. enviable thing oh, to have yeah the album covers Live Destroyer with all four of them like jumping off the exploding planet with their platform shoes on <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's burned into my memory oh yeah so when do you start playing guitar. I was able to get into guitar lessons when I was maybe in third or fourth grade. And that was kind of on the basis of this friendship that I had with this, this kid, Tom, that played drums. Right. And, um, and I think he had a toy kit. Right. You know, and, well, I had access to my mom's nylon string acoustic. I started taking lessons, and I remember that, that you know, in some respects, you know, becoming friends with this guy, Tom, this kid, Tom... Um, that was sort of a route to belonging that I felt I needed to have. Unfortunately, my grades waned considerably mm. through that time period as well. And um, so uh, guitar was considered not a priority. And um, I didn't really return to it until a few years later in middle school. And so when I got into seventh grade, Eighth grade, maybe I think 1980. I bought a first electric, and uh, and my grades are still uneven as could be. Um, I just had trouble concentrating, and and staying focused. I think that you know focus is a grown man's game. It's not really meant for <laughs> prepubescent or pubescent no. kids, but I did learn guitar in the dark. So while you know, I uh, 
wasn't really allowed to play guitar. Um, I had convinced uh, that I would would not play it, but I could keep it stored under the bed. <laughs> and when the house quieted down enough and everybody was asleep, I would take it out of its case and play it at night. Wow. So, uh, and just, just softly, not to disturb anybody, but, but that gave me a tactile understanding of the fretboard. Yeah. And how to not have to follow my hands, and which really helped open the door for me to be uh, able to deliver lyrics and sing. Yeah. Yeah, I always wondered how singer or guitar players do it. You got your eyes on the back of the room, and somehow your guitar still gets played. It's kind of amazing. Well, in my story, that's how that happened. Yeah. And so it was a real gift being grounded from guitar. Right. Um, was um, was being able to play it after everything was quiet, and uh, and to and to understand that there was. A, that there was something beyond being able to visualize the chords, but actually be able to visualize them in my mind and actually have them in my fingers. Yeah. So, Who was your first band? Oh, first band. The first musical... I had a uh, upperclassman, I think he was two years older than me when I got to high school. And, I mean, high school was probably really the the point at which I was able to get together with other kids you know kind of before that point I'd try and escape to a neighbor's house who had a guitar and amplifier and a drum set or whatever but I never I never got away with it for very long at all it was always the long arm of the mom reaching out and bringing me home <laughs> yeah she was not really in with the music huh? well it's you got to understand at that point in time you know, it's very, very different. So when I meet somebody who's my age who tells me that their dad played guitar, played electric, it's like, it's very rare, very unheard of. Yeah. You got to understand that, you know, for your child in 1973 to say, I think I want to learn to play electric guitar, that's tantamount to saying, um, I think I really want to learn how to gamble. Right. <laughs> I really like to like go and shoot pool. See if I could any hustle pool for a bit. Right. You know, just try it. You know, and um, so it wasn't really something that that was really smiled upon in terms of like expression and art, and and so it was a hard hard thing for them to accept that in some respects music had chosen me. Yeah. But I had a upperclassman that used to ridicule me at uh, school. I was at a private school at that point, pretty small school. I was in need of smaller classrooms, increasingly smaller classrooms. And um, at some point, uh, well, he probably was uncomfortable around me because I just, even though I tried to dress the part, I had public school written all over me. Yeah. You know, I let, I let my hair was too long. I looked hippie. It was just not a, a good fit. Yeah. And this is conservative 1980 Tennessee. Yeah. So, but at some point I had sat in on the jazz band and one of his friends was in there playing drums and he says, now that kid, a kid can play. And so this kid that was ridiculing me a couple of grades older than me, and he was from Memphis originally, started kind of asking questions. He started saying, oh, so do you like the who? 
I said, oh yeah, I love The Who. You like The Clash? Oh yeah. Train of Vain. Yeah. Do you like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, The Pretenders? Oh yeah. And uh, he's like, do you like Queen? I said, Queen? Just checking. <laughs> you but know, I, I, I eventually got invited over to his house, and he had a drum set and and an amplifier, so it was very easy to go and play. Yeah, James Honeyman Scott is kind of an underrated guitar player. You know, the Pretenders were a wonderful band. Whenever I learn one of his parts on guitar, I'm like, this guy's a genius. He was great. He was great. He was in the. I would. He was so good. He could he could quote without even thinking about it, um, in the same way that John Frusciante can. Yeah, say that those two are kind of at that zenith of where training meets inspiration. Like, yeah. I mean, their 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 training is really high. Their preparedness is really high, and then they also meets inspiration. Yeah. So that was your first band with this guy. Yes, and uh, I think that we were. Uh, maybe called the low numbers because the the who is called the high numbers and so we figured we'd call ourselves the low numbers and at some point uh, we convinced a professional Nashville session guy to come over to Pat's house and uh, and and jam with us a Saturday (laughs) and after that we were so good I mean, we had no idea how good we could be until this guy showed up. And I think he was, you know, he was probably 23, 24, you know, and just kind of open-minded and figured he'd kind of sit with these, you know. I was 14 and Pat was 16. And this is a 25-year-old kind of coming in to sit in with us on bass. And he was pro and accomplished. And it was just like, it blew our minds. It blew our damn minds at how good and how good we could sound together. <laughs> right. Right. With the right bass player. With the right bassist. Yeah. yeah. And um I mean we were the two of us were never really to happen on a bassist past that point really. It was it, you know. But the good thing about that is I also learned how to play appropriately with a drummer and not having a bassist. So it's yeah. not that bass doesn't make everything better mm-hmm. but i've learned how to to carry it off sometimes in some circumstances where it is not so much missed right and so did the low numbers play any shows no we were way, way too young okay so i also had another band in high oh, school yeah? toward the end called uh, the pink elephants and that was uh myself and uh, uh three others that um, was a cover band and so i remember playing um a gig in tuscaloosa uh with a band i had at that time um in 2000 and 2008 maybe 2009 and uh a band opening up for us had the identical set to the pink elephants and that's what amazed me like All Right Now by Free, um, Cocaine by Eric Clapton, Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Um, 
it was just like the classic rock songbook by numbers. And it was amazing to me was that like, there was a band that's out there at a college doing this. 20 plus years later. Yeah, pushing 30 plus years later. Yeah. Because they got to figure that that was 1986. And so. Frozen in Amber. Well, it, you'll, and, and what's, I think the, the good, or maybe it's the door prize for not being 20 anymore, is that occasionally you get those moments where it, it shows up in all its starkness. Um, it's stark beauty, I guess. So Pink Elephants, your cover band doing classic rock covers, that's actually, you know, that's kind of like boot camp for what we ended up doing in the 90s. It certainly didn't hurt because, I mean, I, I'm a big, big proponent of learning covers. I mean, digging in and understanding how songs are put together, it kind of is your job. I mean, ultimately, it was put to me by a number of years ago, like 20 years ago by a friend. It's like, okay, you're a, you're a musician, you're a songwriter. It's your job to be inspired. I have learned that, you know, I must live in a certain way by which inspiration is likely to happen. What do you do to sort of make sure that ground is fertile in your life? Well, about 15 years ago, I started journaling on a daily basis. And what I found helpful about that is that it's it's kind of a sacrifice of time, just the same way that going to a counselor is, you know, um, right? Uh, journaling allows me to not hold writing at a high risk. Yeah. Because if I've done two pages of journaling, if it's shit, I'll change it. Yeah. You know, if it's if I'm going to write a lyric after that, it's not that big of an accomplishment, so mm -hmm. to speak. So say, for instance, if you've, if you're used, I mean, I don't know, I can't even, if you're used to running a mile, you know, on a daily basis, a 50-yard sprint is not going to challenge me necessarily when that, when that need for that happens. Right. Same with, same with freestyle. Like, if you are used to verse and writing verse and delivering verse, having to freestyle. If you're doing the writing the verse every day, having to freestyle is not that big of a shock, not that big of a risk. Right. So it's helped that. What else? Uh, well, okay, that, that in particular has helped immensely. So it would mm -hmm. be from time to time when I would lay off knock off and my level of anxiety would ramp up to the point to where I would be at you know three days without journaling I'd be like oh fuck it I might as well just go back to journaling because it seemed like I was better off anyway right so I returned to that and what I found is that like um, it allows myself access to myself I work a job in nonprofit with a lot of volunteers, between 11 and 1,500 volunteers walking through every day. Doing that enables me to not feel like I'm parceling myself out. I've already had time with myself. So by the time that they're showing up on whatever trip they're on, I'm cool with it. Yeah, so you get up super early to journal? I do. What time do you get up? I get up at five. Every day? It's about every day. I may sleep in a little bit, you know, yesterday. 
no, I slept in a little bit today, slept in a little bit, maybe sleep in a little bit tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. But I find that in and around that time when it's quiet, I can get up and be with myself. When did you start that? That largely started in a habitual form in 2005, late 2005. So, which you, you kind of have to understand that August 29th, 2005 is a pretty important marker. So I was in, I was swinging a hammer in New Orleans and um, in, in care for anxiety and depression and going into counseling and uh, on on Lexapro and uh, and after August 29th, 2005, I didn't have access to that anymore because it was Katrina and there were different needs. Yeah, so more primal needs. I went off, uh, I went off Lexapro during that time. <laughs> it's always, <laughs> going off meds is always funny. <laughs> it's like elect the electrical impulse has become very, very pronounced. Um, uh, it's almost like I was getting little static shocks in my head is what it felt like. That's not the first time I've heard Lexapro withdrawal described that way. Yeah. So, um, but it dawned on me as well that, um, that, that the value of, 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 uh, a talk therapy. So, and, and therapy and meds, started to present themselves as a solution in a very, very different way. So I had to remember that, okay, when I started um, talk therapy and Lexapro, I was working a job landscaping, which is kind of grueling in New Orleans, but I was taking that hard cash that I was making there and paying it to the doctor on a week-by-week -week basis for the explicit purpose of getting better. So I'm taking sweat equity money and praying at somebody with the intent of getting better. I don't want to drift too far from Katrina, though. So I understand now that you were seeking treatment for anxiety, depression. You're, you're breaking your back doing landscaping in the hottest city in America mm -hmm. and, and paying the doctor and, 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 and buying Lexapro. But then, then the world ends, right? Your city floods. <laughs> And somehow that got you to journaling, and I, I want to hear that journey. Okay, well, so when I was, uh, we so we initially went to Memphis, and when I was in Memphis, still kind of dealing with a lot of fear, and uh, a friend of mine had sent me a card for Starbucks. So well, maybe I need to get out of the house. And got out of the house, got a coffee, and that's okay. That'll work so far, and I just started journaling. I knew it was a good idea. I'd read Julia Cameron and, and Artist Away, and, and you know I knew that all of this stuff was like, someday you should do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, after Katrina, what better excuse? Right. We were in need of jobs. Mm -hmm. We were in need of schools and housing. So there's nothing to rush off to. There's right. just to be right here. Yeah. And um, and so that 
that became more of a focus for my for my life at that point of like okay can you be in the moment can you really exist in the moment and journaling kind of helped that too as well yeah but it was almost like the more that i was willing to journal and then just kind of spell out the fears or put them down and then talk about you know the things that moved me from what i was getting on the way of reports from back home okay well this is happening okay wow when i saw the all of the the people in Slidell basically taking whatever they had from their homes and just walking the interstate. <laughs> that was, I was, I was very sad. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the journaling sort of served the purpose that a lot of people use meditation for, for you, that, that it was ability to sort of contextualize yourself and become intimate with your actual fears, desires, and aspirations in the moment. Yeah, Truly. And so I got in the habit around that time. And um, and I'd knock off, I'd lay off for like a little bit here and there, but I'd always come back to it. I'd always return to it because living with the resolute anxiety and fear that I had, that I, that I've been endowed with for this lifetime. Right. (laughs) Seemed impetus enough for me to do, for me to do it daily. I want to, I want to get from Pink Elephants to, was it University of Tennessee? It was actually at Western Kentucky University, so right. in Bowling Green. Right, and and Steve Gorman was there. Steve Gorman was there. He was my RA. He saw me the first day I moved in, and uh, he uh, was like, "Hey, James." I was like, "Hey," he's like, "I'm Steve Gorman. I'm uh, your RA, and yeah, just here to make sure that everything's good. You got everything you need. You need a grape Kool Aid or anything like that. I'm a few doors down the hall, and I have no roommate, so." I've got a rocking chair. Come by anytime you feel you need to. He was destined to become a psychologist, I think. But uh, he was great. <laughs> he, I'm trying to find a diplomatic way of saying that he definitely surrounded himself with crazy people for a long time. He, he did. He did. But he he had a very colorful family, though, too, as well. And uh, yeah, always a, he always had about... Uh, he always had a story better than anybody's I knew. If you don't know, Steve Gorman, of course, is the drummer for the Black Crows, who just recently wrote an incredible book, which I'm going to talk to him about soon. Um, we've kind of got a standing date, like, let's let's do a Crash and Ride episode. But um, I knew from his book that he had gotten involved with Mary My Hope. Yeah. No, but he wasn't a musician in college. Um, he was not a musician in college, but he was a drummer. And... Um, <laughs> I'm gonna not take that personally. He, well, he, but he was he was drumming. Put it this way, not a drummer, but he was a he was a drummer. Was he? He was, and and he knew enough about the drum kit in order to feel confident and 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 competent at it. Right. So he was, and that when I say he was a drummer, that's what I mean, like a natural, naturally born drummer. Right. I think so. And I thought you were drawing a distinction between being a musician and a drummer. Like, you know that joke, right? What do you call guys who like to hang out with musicians? <laughs> Drummers. Right. No, I, I have far too much respect for people that play the drums to, to, to do that. And then I've seen so many drummers that are so melodic and colorful what they're playing. So did he get to Atlanta before you? He did. So he um, left Western Kentucky with I think just a few hours credit left for his communications undergrad degree 
and moved in with Clint, Chris Robinson, and Sven into a house on Oakdale Street in Little Five, right at Candler Park. Um, and how did Mary My Hope form? Mary My Hope formed out of an idea that uh, Clint and Sven and Steve needed a front man. And Steve had some experience with me from playing shows with the Park Avenue Dregs up in Western Kentucky at the local bar there mm-hmm. at a place called Picasso's. What I remember about Bowling Green is that it was, well, I was drinking a lot through that time. Yeah. And, uh, but yet it was also really, really beautiful country. So you get to Atlanta, Clint, Sven, Steve. S- Steve and Chris, all in one house. Right. So I joined them, and I'm in the room with Clint, and Clint's kind of floating between that room and his mom's place um, in Buckhead. And um, But I'm in the room with Sven and Steve, and you know, I was really into Echo and the Bunny Man and Smith and Cure and Jesus and Mary Chain. And I remember like bringing my cassettes down and um, Chris looking in the shoebox that my cassette tapes are in. And he's like, Yeah, you probably won't be listening too much of that at this house. <laughs> <laughs> what were they listening to? Well, uh, what was good about Chris is that Chris was even, had even. A greater, more pronounced ADHD than I did. So he would invariably put on John Coltrane and then leave the house. Like it would be in the in for 30 seconds. He'd get a phone call. It's like, oh, we're going to shoot baskets. Okay, cool. Leave the house. And so I got turned on to a lot of great music just because he didn't have any attention span. And so he'd put on a whole side, a whole side of Velvet Underground, a whole side of, 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 oh, God knows, Big Star. Like just like, all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't have heard any other way other than him going to the record store, hearing something that was cool or liking the artwork or having a conversation about this artist with somebody, right. Tom Waits, right. and then bringing it home and just kind of putting it on the turntable and then him leaving. Gorman worked at Wax and Facts, right? He did. Man, he there's did. a conduit to great music. That was a conduit to great music. And, and, and perhaps that was more of a, uh, how would we call it? a gentle, suggestive nature to getting Chris to to listen to to different stuff. Right. Um, But I remember, um, like, so many records I would be listening to, and I'd be sitting there, and I kind of resent the fact that Chris was playing it so loud in the living room because you can't talk over anything at that that level. But then when he'd get up and go somewhere else or disappear or whatever, run off to do something else, I heard a brilliant album side right i thought of myself as a grown-up but i mean i was 19 18 so you know we were pretty much babes in the woods here in atlanta area we weren't much older than the kids that were in high school right and um and acclimating to marta you know getting around writing on marta and getting yeah yeah and uh trying to learn where the places to play were. But the first place to play that we knew of was a place called The Dugout. And that was right in Emory Village. And uh, and we go down there and, and either see shows. Oh, I saw Alex Chilton play there. I saw Think Jet play there. I saw 
Mercyland play there. I saw oh, yeah. Barbecue Killers play there. I saw Why You Are play there. I saw The Grapes play there. Um, I'm naming off a bunch of bands that are probably not resonating with anybody, but um, they are with me. I mean, I know all those bands. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, Chris and Steve were always playing basketball together. And at some point, uh, Chris appealed to Steve to join Mr. Crow's Garden. Right. Which later, as you know, became the Black Crows. Right, right. But, but um, he was in Marry My Hope. But he was in Marry My Hope. In the, in the book, in his book, there's a flyer from the, his first show, and it's May 30th, 1990-something. Yeah, 1980-something. 80-something. I just yeah. remember that because May 30th is my birthday. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that would be May 30th, 1987. Yeah. And that may have been, was that with Mary My Hope? Mm-hmm. Okay. That was my first show. Yeah. Yeah, first show with Mary My Hope. And um, and I think I wore a priest's shirt for that one there. Coming in hot, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how long was Mary My Hope together? Mary My Hope was together for probably four years but with me as a singer uh almost three there was someone before you or someone after you no someone after me yeah yeah a friend of ours a guy named jeff williams that joined the band as carl vone and played and toured with them some sometime after that he used a pseudonym uh, yeah i think that i mean god knows by the time we hit 1990 and the band was I don't know. Do I, do I, we were having trouble. We were having trouble communicating. We were having trouble agreeing. And, and, and I think that the competitive nature of that group turned negative. You and mean com- the competitive nature within the band, the intra band competitiveness? Yeah. So three years is kind of a long time when you're 19, 20, 21 years old. It seems like for, it seems like an eternity I mean, when you're that yeah. age. And, and Mary and I hope, really was nuclear hot for a minute mm-hmm. in Atlanta. There was a lot of label talk. There was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. But to hear you tell it now was pretty toxic work environment. Well, it got that way. I mean, I don't know. I have to own up to my part of it. Okay, what did I bring? I bring. I brought... Don't talk, don't feel, don't trust. <laughs> right, right. And run and, and control everything. And try and control everything. Or yeah. or try and, you know, it, was, it, could, it could be, I could be terribly passive aggressive and feel that, you know, okay, well, if I don't take charge of this and it's all going to go sideways. Or uh, don't worry about it, you know, something will work out, you know. It was, uh, I didn't have any real understanding of what was being asked. You know, both of of us as a band, or even as me as a singer. So uh, after about three years of, of "Marry My Hope," I go back to Nashville and um, get a job working a restaurant on Ellison, and um, saving money, paying rent, and uh, and then move to New Orleans. How long were you in Nashville in the gap between Atlanta and 
uh, I was in Nashville until from about May till about September, and then moved down to New Orleans. And uh, I mean, that was I didn't really know anyone there, and I moved to a uh, pretty much of a flop house motel called the Hummingbird Hotel. You lived at the Hummingbird? I did initially. I've I've eaten at that little diner there a million times. Yeah. It was fifteen dollars a night back when I moved there in nineteen ninety. Wow. And uh and yeah. It was well, it was I, I remember ordering um you know, thinking in the middle of the night one night I think I wanted to have oatmeal and I asked, Well, how's the oatmeal? And our waiter um, that time he says, I don't recommend it. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about staying at the Hummingbird. Right. I don't recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, I, you know, basically all of my belongings in uh, the station wagon that I that I kind of brought from Nashville, the station wagon that I grew up in, basically down from Nashville down to New Orleans, and I had it in an overnight garage, and then um, after getting on the payphone with the classifieds and trying to find out where I wanted to live and what my options were. Thankfully, Sean um, had a friend there. Sean Dunn? Sean Dunn had a friend Did you know him from the Blood Poets? I knew him from the Blood Poets and from working at Metronome Music in Atlanta. And uh, that was right over in Ansley Mall area. And uh, he and I hadn't really talked too much until kind of that last year I had in in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I was asking him a bit about New Orleans, what it was like growing up there, and um, I um, uh, heard back from uh, Sean, and he says, "Hey man, I got a friend down on Magazine Street. You, know, you should call her up. Her name's Cheryl." And so it went over to her house and actually was Wait, able to use Cheryl that Sean eventually married. Cheryl that Sean eventually married. Wow. Small world, <laughs> small world, and um, and in fact, when I went, I uh, was able to take a look at the place that was basically opposite a girls' school from where she was living. I moved in there, and Cheryl and I became fast friends. We really did, and both of us were lonely. Yeah, you know, both of us were strangers in a city. Was she waiting tables at? Um, she was waiting tables at the Bluebird. The Bluebird, yeah, yeah. I think she was doing that at that point. And then um, it wasn't long before I was renting a rehearsal room at Jimmy Robinson's place over in Mid City, mm-hmm. and uh, and then starting to get you know get together with drummers, book gigs, and. Uh, at that point in time, I was doing mainly acoustic gigs, but um, but you know having a drummer amplify the guitar, and have it real loud. You were playing an acoustic through two amps at that time, right? I was playing an acoustic through two amps. So you saw that? Oh no, I've done. I've interviewed two other members of your band. Okay, that okay that <laughs> yeah, that, and okay. they all talked about what a remarkable sound that was. In presentation too, I'm sure. Yeah, you know these were. These are amplifiers that were rated for roadies, strong roadies in 1970. Right. And uh, <laughs> so Ampegs. Ampegs. Yeah. Yeah. Two half stack Ampegs. And uh, Jesus. Yeah, it was quite a presentation. Yeah. But um, 
but yeah, I had a, a Yamaha acoustic that had a pickup, you know, sound hole pickup in. I'd run those two amps, and it's was quite a sound. Red label, uh, FG one eighties or whatever they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Those Yamahas. That's the Elliott Smith guitar. They sound great. I mean, last night I was at, I was so I just sold an enormous lot of seventy eight RPM records to a guy, and I walked into the room where he keeps the, his records, and there were. 25 26 acoustic guitars wow and the one on the stand by the couch was one of those red label yamahas and i said i love those guitars yeah he said there's a lot of guys that will fight you over this but i will say that those guitars sound better than the martins that were being built at the same time wow well i it's still in the family it's it's in the possession of michael jerome that same guitar oh yeah Mm -hmm. he's a phenomenal drummer well, just after Katrina, I just I like do. What do I want to hang on to? What do I want to keep up with? What do I feel that I have to absolutely have? Nothing will Marie Kondo your house like having to run out of it in a disaster. Well, the the faith that developed upon that was that I have everything I need. Yes, to be happy, joyous, useful, and free. And and during that time, I said to myself, if I, if, I ever, if I ever forget that truth, then catastrophic loss once more will well be worth it. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that says to me too as well that like, okay, if if your day requires that you have a hammer and I have a hammer and I'm not using it, take this hammer. Because even if I need that same hammer or a hammer at 5 a.m. the following morning to crush a bug or whatever. Right. Something will work out. It's always a shoe. Or a shoe. Yeah. <laughs> but that became more of my, my faith base is that, that the universe typically delivers what I need as opposed to uh, the thing I hate. Yeah. yeah. I lived many, many years thinking that, oh, the universe is here to deliver things I don't want. Or don't need, <laughs> you know, and that's a heavy contract with the universe. Yeah. So there was palpable sense when you left Atlanta and left Mary My Hope, like James has gone to do his forty days in the desert, mm. and and I remember this, and people were like, "He's in New Orleans. What's he doing in New Orleans?" Well, it's where all the voodoo music is in New Orleans, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you meet. Grant Curry, mm-hmm. um, and you start the James Hall Band. Mm-hmm. So you got your boot of music. So, well, yeah, I'd, um, Lynn Wright moved down to New Orleans not long after I did. Then, how did you know Lynn? He was, he was in Atlanta? I, he was in Atlanta, yeah. And, um, and then, um, so Lynn, Sterling, Grant, and I, all started rehearsing at Jimmy Robinson's. We had a half space. We had a half warehouse space. And uh, we started rehearsing in that room down there. But it initially started as um, myself and then a drummer and then myself and then Lynn. And then I think Grant saw the two of us play with a drummer. This is kind of a pickup drummer. This guy named Cosmo on drums. And Cosmo, who did have ties himself to Athens, too. So, but, um, and Grant saw the show and he's like, look, this is great. 
This needs nothing. This doesn't need bass. But <laughs> if you're thinking about adding a bass, I'd sure like to, try to, yeah. to give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he said that, and then God knows at that point in time in my life, I was so emotionally checked out. And I said, well, that'd be the nat- you know, most logical, natural next step, you know, right. in my cool way. But do you find that's a, a re- recurring theme, at least up to that point of you, how you dealt with, with anxiety and trauma was to just check out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, I mean, I remember ask a friend of mine, like probably seven years ago, asking how I felt about something. And, and I had no, it was like, he might as well have asked me that in Mandarin. I don't speak Mandarin. But I'd never really considered how I feel about something. And um, where do you think that impulse comes from? Um, I, you know, I did have a, a, a brother who struggled with alcohol and addiction and, and, and mental illness um, for his entire life. And uh, where is and, he relation to you age wise? Uh, he was adopted, and he is um, a year and a few months younger than me. But um, so, I mean, there was that. There certainly was that. But where it comes to like, how did that affect me? You know, in terms of uh, dealing with feelings. I mean, I may have learned that my feelings weren't really important. <laughs> right. <laughs> they are. They are now, but, right. but at that age, you know. Sure. And then uh, I, um, we all learn that, you know, when we're six, that we don't, you know, have the perspective to say, you know, hey, you know, I realize you all got a lot in your plate and, you know, and I, and I, I trust that you love me, but I could use some time and attention and <laughs> and some one-on-one time with you mom or dad you know we just don't have any perspective to ask for what we need at that age right so um so we learn uh, we learn other ways yeah so grant joins James grant joins yes yeah. and um um and we start uh doing shows and what was remarkable about his attitude is he just had no expectations whatsoever. You know, I was intent on proving that I'd been somebody and done something and been somewhere and knew some things. <laughs> and he's just like, this is Baton Rouge. I'm loving Baton Rouge. You know, this is, this is Atlanta. I'm loving Atlanta for what it is. Right. So he was, uh, one of the important portals to enjoying the moment. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a wizard of portals to higher understanding. I mean, he'd, (laughs) we'd be staying at the master's Inn on tour to Augusta, Georgia or something like that. And we'd maybe even have a little money from that. And, each have our own rooms or something like that, or maybe him and Lynn would have the smoking room and I'd have the non-smoking room and he'd come over and say, hey, what are you doing? It's like, well, I just uh, feel like being with somebody right now. Like, I'd never met anybody that could be that honest. Yeah. 
He's always very present in in his like he can tell you Grant can tell you what Grant needs. Yeah. I mean, what a gift. Yeah. I mean, that was the that was the right person at the right time for for where I was at. Yeah. And um and still is. You know? Do you remember the show coming back to Atlanta, the Point show? The show coming back. Uh there was all this expectation. I remember this. Um you marry my hope. You left Mary Mike, gone to New Orleans. People were starting to hear rumblings that there was a new band. Yeah. yeah. And this was right after the accident, um, the Jody Grind accident. It was a very heavy weekend. It was right after Easter of, what, 91? Yeah. Yeah, it sure was. I sure do remember it. And I remember, like, not even uh, feeling like playing. I think we even played, like, a Sunday night or something like that. It was something crazy. And um, and everybody was mourning it. Deacon Lunchbox, you know, but peers, and but m- more more so than that, really, really valid, unique artists. Yeah, that weren't gonna come home. Yeah, so I guess I, I, for a second I got out of my head and forgot I wasn't just talking to my friend who um, James, but in. I guess this was 1991. There was a band from Atlanta called the Jody Grind, and Jody Grind often toured with this performance poet named Deacon Lunchbox. Timothy Tyson Rutmer was his full name, and Kelly Hogan uh, and Bill Taft were the singer and guitar player in that band, and decided to stay in Pensacola after the Jody Grind played there the weekend before Easter, so they could buy fireworks in Florida because fireworks were not legal in Georgia at that time. And the rest of the band, which was Deacon Lunchbox and the bass player and drummer at that time, decided to drive back to Atlanta. And sometime in the wee hours of the morning between Montgomery, Alabama and Atlanta, another driver in an RV crossed the center lane and hit them head on and everyone in the van was killed. And that was Saturday night. And then the James Hall Band plays The Point Sunday night. Yeah. And um, all I remember is that, like, I felt terribly inadequate. Like, like I mean, it, like, no music seems like the appropriate thing in that instance. The whole community has been emotionally leveled. Yeah. and And so... I do remember calling for a, at least a moment of respect and reflection and silence before playing yeah. our set. I felt at least that much was appropriate. Mm-hmm. And then um, we had, um, I think we just started performing the song we had called Criminal Hero, which is, do you remember the stars that used to shine in the city of broken dreams? Do you remember the lovers that would have died for each other to set their hearts free? Do you enjoy your face in the mirror or is it just a beautiful lie? Have you ever wondered, is it a stranger talking in your voice when you sleep? That seemed like okay to yeah. to go with and and you know, are you alone in this age of ice? Uh and um, are you emotional 
don't remember the lyrics. <laughs> but um, are you uh, are you hollow to your own expression? Do you? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, that song seemed like a good match for where everybody was feeling, or at least in our band. And um, and that song is. You know, the best I could do, because I'd heard um, Heroes, the song by Bowie before, but I didn't have the record. And so I was trying to recreate it from memory. <laughs> and uh, But I'm pleased with how it came out, and it's, an, right. it's a statement unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, kind of the phased guitar and, and how, we, how we'd play it live was definitely my attempt at kind of recreating a memory that I have of how brilliant a song called Heroes was, even though Criminal Heroes, a bit more Taxi Driver. Right. But, um, uh, but that was a, that was a heavy night. There was a lot of, a lot of buzz about the new James Hall project. And then you guys, you did like, that tour, which is, I recall from talking to Grant about it and Sterling, that it was Atlanta and maybe Birmingham and one other show, and back to New Orleans, and then you guys started working on planning the next move. Now we got back to um, uh, New Orleans and started planning an album. Yeah. And, um, and we worked on it with Brian Harden, who was from Nashville, but um, but Frank knew him from Washington D.C. area, and Brian Harden was very 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 serious about combing through the songs, and and then for my own part, I was also at a point where I was starting to become a little bit more open minded about how you know how songs are arranged, how songs are presented, although I was still deeply attached to controlling the process. Yeah. Um, but part of it was me wanting to see, okay, well, can I do it? Can I do it? Do I even have what it, you know, takes in order to pull it off? Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, Amy Ray also got involved too as well with Damon basically Records. the executive production and yeah. paying for the studio time and the release and, and the promotion of it. And, um, I mean, that was great to get to know, um, uh, Amy and Emily a bit um, to us they were just kind of like a weird folk group at least to Mary My Hope to Mary My Hope they were a weird folk group that enthusiastically promoted local bands including Mary My Hope and um, they were champions absolutely Damon yeah. Records was the springboard for a bunch of great music and 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 their songs, their yeah. songs, their songs, their songs. Yeah. yeah. And and the other thing is, I got a chance to do shows with them because um, they were always bringing out whoever. Yeah. They were open minded, you know. Whoever they did not have to have the Indigo Boys open up for the Indigo Girls. They could have anybody they wanted to, and and it didn't matter whether it was live and loud or creative or with horns or whatever. Mm-hmm. They were so open minded, but um. But they were really, truly fans of music, 
and really open-minded about stuff and and it was uh, a lot of good memories of like doing stuff with them and touring with them yeah so Amy uh, and David Records they put up some money for you to make a record you guys go to Nashville right go to Nashville yes and um, so we went to Sound Emporium uh, the B Room and um, that was in March of 1993 and uh was it March of 93? Seemed like it was, yeah. It was 93. And um, and we could get 24-hour blocks for $300 a block. So we were able to... So we would record as long as we could stay awake, basically, yeah. to make that record. Yeah. And that meant certain moments where, God, the... That floor underneath the control board looks so comfy right now. It's just, <laughs> yeah. just going under. And so uh, Brian, uh, my goodness, he was a he was a force of nature because he could stay awake. And this is, you know, I don't know how he would do it, but he would stay awake at length to get these things tracked, to get these things, to get these songs recorded. And uh, he was tireless. I, and and I found that to be impressive because i thought i was right brian was clean so he was just clean and awake for days on end working on this record but we started it out there we did overdubs um at uh, a couple of other studios in nashville area and ended up mixing over right off of music row and and really happy with what was happening in terms of like a a definitive release of being something different than Mary My Hope, which I felt was like a pretty high bar. Yeah. And um and something that we could we felt that we could take and offer people that might like you know, something something new. You you get this record together, you get it out, and you steam west straight into a bidding war. We do. So the th- the, you know, Rich Levy was also aware of this too as well. But but Rich, Frank, Frank's and Amy Ray, yeah, all were kind of talking about okay, well, how do we strategize this? Okay, well, how about this? I mean, we're in New Orleans, we're right on the Mississippi River, so why don't we do for the remainder of 1993, we'll tour and play east of the Mississippi. And so that's what we did. We went up through Greenville, South Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, up uh, to New York, up to Boston. I mean, we played, you know, everywhere that was really available to gig at that point in time. And then came over to Chicago, came back down. We, uh, but, you know, we tried to, like, get as much activity and as much going east of the Mississippi as we could. And we came home. Um, Mark... Uh, had had a bit of a meltdown, our drummer at that point in time. Sterling uh, was offered a spot back in the band. Mm-hmm. We started rehearsing in, uh, well, we came back to New Orleans. I went right back to work in the hotels. Within a day of being back in the hotels, I found out that one of the guys that had gotten me the job in the hotels, who was very interested in guns and I would say kind of inordinately interested in guns and and guns capable of you know firing off a lot of a lot of rounds had uh, 
shot his common-law wife, um, her son, her daughter, their twins in the crib, her and himself, uh, and basically just had a massacre right over off of Frenchman Street. So I'm like, you know, back in New Orleans, back in that thing, back in that heaviness. And New Orleans carries a lot of heaviness. It does. Yeah. And uh, it's not that I don't want to do music anymore, but I was coming back to like a an unfortunate reality. In fact, you know what? There's many, many times where I come back to New Orleans and and it would be like, oh, you know, you didn't hear? Oh, yeah. That girl that lived over there, she hung herself. And she got her bike and, you know, hung herself from the chandelier. She's she's gone. And it's that city. Well, has a lot of exposure to it. Has a lot of sensitive people there. And and it's a it can be a heavy culture to grow up in. Yeah. And um, so, meet with Sterling. We start rehearsing. It's into getting into January. We're starting to get out of winter, and we started going. Okay, look, it's time to head out. So we hit the road in '94, and we head across Texas, playing shows out there, and we get to Tempe, Mesa, Arizona, and. Um, and A&M Records representative there, Emily Kay's there, and she's loving it. She's loving the record. And then by the time we get to Los Angeles, Emily and um, Mark Williams from Virgin, and there's other labels that are expressing interest all showing up at the shows. <laughs> and. and you know, we've we gotten really used to being nobodies. <laughs> right. Yeah. So this was a little odd and and arguably intoxicating. And uh and we're you know, we're staying with friends in Pasadena and and heading into town and the van's kinda starting to give out a little bit and and so we're you know, and my amplifier's starting to give out a little bit and so we're all kind of adjusting to you know okay this is where we are and um and so by really the third gig in los angeles we had a full house at the viper room and um and there was all sorts of people that were interested in signing us so uh but we had a tour Mm -hmm. and so we continued on with the tour went to san francisco and 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 then worked our way all the way up Seattle and then turned around in Seattle and, and worked our way back down. And I think even on our way back down, we played San Francisco. The club owner in the club across the street appealed to us to play his club after we got done. And so we got a chance to load out literally by hand from one club to another across the street and play a second gig. And, uh, uh, just it was a lot of excitement and fun surrounding what we were doing and it was encouraging because we didn't really feel that we had to be anything other than who we were the freaks that we were you know uh, 
amateur trumpet play and pantyhose wear and singer guitarist and and we had a damn fine band and uh and a strong album so we get back through um uh, hollywood and we meet with one guy named mio vukovic who um it works at geffen and he was uh brought up under um uh was it tom zutow somewhat i think in uh, John Kaladner. John Kaladner, I think, was really his, his main uh, mentor uh, mentor for that. And we got a chance to talk with him and, and, and bonded with him a good bit and headed back and, and came back home. And that was a pretty interesting time to get back into New Orleans and and uh, I ended up going back out to look at labels, talk with them again, try and make a, a wise and judicious decision about who to go with, who to feel, who to feel out. And, um, you know, when it really came down to it, who's the best label to be with at that point in time? And it seemed like Geffen was the place that made the most sense. Yeah. At least to me. Um, my heart was with Emily at A&M. But um, and A and M was very small and not confusing. Uh, Epic Sony, very confusing. Virgin, kind of busy and 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 British. Um, but I, it was the beginning of my awareness of like the tone that that organizations had based on the leadership. Right. The um, thing about Geffen that was kind of freakish and sad is that Kurt Cobain had killed himself that was 94 and so like you know by the time I was walking through Geffen and you know the the promotional posters for Nevermind and and In Utero and you know the gold records and stuff were still on the wall there and it's not that they wouldn't be, but like it was just still so fresh and raw. And it was a very, very sad, like kind of feeling to be there around that and very heavy. Yeah. Um, but when it came right down to it, you know, at that point in time in the industry, Geffen was perhaps the best shot that a new band had of not falling through the cracks as we knew that we weren't the only bands being looked at yeah we knew we weren't the only bands in a signing frenzy they were throwing a lot of stuff against the wall then they were throwing a lot of stuff against the wall they were throwing a lot of money around yeah. a lot of a lot of promise and um and for me you know my perspective was that like okay this is kind of my second time through it right and um so i uh tried to keep an open mind but i also tried to 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 remember you know who i liked there and and um you know art art department there i really loved i really loved uh, uh promotions and radio and and it seemed like the people there were really genuine and really were kind of courted as the best at what they do and uh and and i loved that and i loved mio vukovic's attitude about about music and and how to 
how to pull a record together and, and what we was listening for in songs. And Mio was really, I mean, I'll say this about Mio is that he's the first guy that I knew, or at least in that business, that closed his eyes to listen to stuff. And so he was really tuning into how it feels more so than what it looks like. And uh, and that's still affecting me to this day. I still still routinely close my. I try not to close my eyes when I'm driving and listening to music, but I but I do find myself if I'm asked to listen to something that I do find myself closing my eyes to hear it. Yeah, it helps. It helps my critical listening too to close my eyes. The Crash and Ride podcast would like you to know about a new industry-wide initiative focused on mental health called Backline. Backline is a hub for artists, industry professionals, and their families to quickly and easily access mental health and wellness resources. Backline has partnered with leading support organizations and care providers to streamline access to services specifically geared towards the music industry. Go to www.backline.care to get the support you need to thrive both on and off the road. The way Backline works is you contact them either through their 800 number or through their website and they assign you a caseworker. That caseworker is familiar with healthcare resources in your area. So if you call them from San Antonio or Austin or Buffalo or Pittsburgh or Athens, Georgia, they're going to know how to contact people in your area who can help you get therapy, get other resources, maybe get meds if you need them, get into rehab, get a sober companion for touring, whatever you need to get better, Backline has access to those resources. For example, like if you call from Athens, Georgia, they're going to plug you into NutriSpace. NutriSpace is a nonprofit musician's mental health resource based here in Athens, Georgia, where you can go and get referrals for subsidized therapy. So you can maybe talk to someone for like 15 bucks an hour. That's what it cost me when I went. NutriSpace also has encounter groups for like suicide survivors. They have AA and NA meetings there. They have dentists come in and check people's teeth like once a year. You can get a hearing screening there. NutriSpace is a fucking miracle, and I'm really glad it's here in Athens, Georgia. Go to NUCI.org, that's Nucci.org, for more information or call 706-227-1515. And finally, if you're struggling with anxiety or depression and you're contemplating self-harm, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. It's 24-7. It's free. It's confidential. They have trained volunteers to talk you through your crisis. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Or go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. All right, let's jump back into our interview with James Hall. So you guys went with Geffen. Mm-hmm. You made a record. Mm-hmm. We made a record uh, in 1996 up in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, we were joined with uh, Phil Niccolo based on uh, Mio's uh, familiarity with Phil and Joe Niccolo, a.k.a. the Butcher Brothers. Um, Phil was a bit more of the rock side of it than Joe, but um, they're twins. And uh, and they were they had a studio in downtown Philadelphia, but they had moved a studio out into Conshohocken, and a little ways out, kind of near King of Prussia, kind of near Bryn Mawr. But um, they had a studio in a small town up there, and we went and recorded there. And uh, and certain things that I never expected to come together really came together for that record. And um, we're very 
I was still and proud of that record, even though <clears throat> I didn't necessarily love the running order. But to me now, it makes total sense. But um, but it's a wild and diverse record, and it just, you know, I made each album as if it was going to be huge, right? And um, but I also know that it's been argued many, many times by more than just me that I'm lacking perspective. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? Well, that. We'll put it this way. Uh, in 2000 or 1999 or sometime around there, I went and worked with Jay Joyce. I was asked to work with this guy, Jay Joyce. Go to a studio in Nashville. He's a good guy. And he's uh, got this band called Iodine. And, um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a new wave kind of thing or kind of alternative rock kind of thing. Maybe you go up there and record with him. So I go up there and record with him and work on a few songs and songs are kind of finished i just kind of you know sketched the lyrics out pretty rapidly and recorded it and 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 he was you know he was pretty open-minded about stuff he's like man it sounds like your songs are there i'm like oh okay and um and he had his bass player chris feinstein who i'd heard about for years and years growing up in tennessee that came in and played drums on the stuff and bass on the stuff and and he was enthusiastic about it and and so I came home and I was like, you know, I don't know how it went. You know, it sounds like it's okay, but it's just not really finished. Well, my wife ended up liking it. And then Donnie, my manager at that point, Donnie Graves liked it. And then Todd Sullivan, who had sent me up there, he loved it. And then Grant came around and was like, man, you know, as much as I hated the fact that you did this without me, this shit sounds great. You know, and and uh, so, you know, I kind of lived with that reality for a little bit there. And to me, it just sounded like kind of unfinished business. And then, um, you know, my, my manager at that point, Donnie, said to me, he's like, James, let me give you a little bit of managerial advice. He said, <laughs> if your A&R is like, blaring your most recent demo so loud that he wants everybody in his wing of the division to know that you've got some great new stuff happening. Don't go fixing it for him. <laughs> so that becomes the brilliance of being wrong, right? Right. And that becomes the opportunity that, that being wrong or misinterpreting or not having perspective or being too close to it right. lends. Yeah, it great. It creates a great opportunity to be wrong. I feel like so your your Geffen record came out, and then you guys spent like two and a half, three years on the road, right? Like we actually did not. Uh, now we were able to tour pretty evenly. Uh, well, okay. Basically, the Geffen record came out probably in March of 1996. Mm -hmm. um, and that lent itself to a number of tours that we were able to do across that year. Right. Uh, so we were able to do the Maria McKee tour. We were able to go into Europe and do the Evil Empire kind of preemptive tour with Rage Against the Machine. Wait, wait, wait. Maria McKee from Lone Justice? Yes. So you went from playing with 
Maria McKeith Lund Justice to playing with Rage Against the Machine. Yes. That's a big jump. It's a big jump. Big big jump for me, right? Yeah. Well, did you find that you had to have a different approach to your performance with those two different audiences? The only thing that at least that I noticed about it is that just you better cut out anything less than 80 BPM with Rage because yeah. the Rage is a younger audience. Right. So we were, I mean, okay, this is the thing about, you know, kind of getting older in music. You become aware that like, oh, wait a second. You mean not everybody in that crowd is our age or older? No. Right. Some of these kids are getting dropped off by mom and dad because they can't drive yet. Right, right. And so is this that was a lesson kind of, you learned from playing a ballad third that night that you opened for Rage Against Rage the Machine? Rage Against the Machine, yeah. 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 I've heard this story from... I want to hear it from your perspective now okay. I've heard it from two other people. Well, okay, from my perspective, uh, we get up, we play. It's going pretty good. This is at? At Brixton Academy. Brixton Academy. Yeah, so Brixton Academy is a large hall. Opening for Rage Against the Machine. Opening for Rage Against the Machine. Soccer game that day, right? Soccer game that day. Yeah, so we had the Yabos. Right. <laughs> All out. Been drinking since noon. Been drinking since noon ready to see Rage Against the Machine play. And I think that they just didn't really want to necessarily see us. And so people were throwing beers, quarters, whatever. Or not quarters. Pound coins, right? Yeah, pound coins. Yeah. and uh, Those are thick. They yes. can hurt you. They can hurt. And uh, and we're getting pelted with all that sort of stuff. And um, and then we get sensitive a bit and, and play, you know, illingness uh, or, you know, morning lust or something like that. Both great songs, but just not what they wanted to hear. <laughs> right. And um, and so, you know, we're kind of fielding the occasional beer. I mean, and, I mean, to to hold it into context, though, Mary and My Hope had played shows in in Bath, in Gloucester, where we're getting you know people spitting at us. And so we don't know this from anything else. Right. English audiences if they dig you, they they you know, they lob, you know, spit at you if or coins or whatever. Right. If they don't, they do the same. Right. So it's hard to know. <laughs> but um at some point we have a song that is basically it's a, a slowed down version of the song we have called Spade called Black is Black. And there's an there's an opportunity to kind of get right out and get right into it and find out where people are at, mm-hmm. and um, and I go down with the trumpet in the audience and the mic, and apparently the press really really loved that because it's like this guy's this guy doesn't know that they hate him. <laughs> this guy's he just. He's gonna get killed. <laughs> this guy has no idea what he's getting himself, what he's asking for, what he's beckoning for. Mm-hmm. And maybe I didn't. I mean, you know, part of me knew because, like, okay, this is kind of is what it is. Because I'd, I'd heard that that when Rage Against the Machine was there two years ago or a year and a half ago, opening for Suicidal Tendencies, that they were the ones getting spat at, right. coins thrown at, right, right, ears right. hurled at. So. It was just kind of par for the course, mm-hmm. but get right down into it, and uh, 
and the press seemed to really like that I had the horn in, in the in the Yabos faces mm-hmm. and that I was just playing <laughs> and that um, they kind of said that it's like okay here's a band that actually is saying like we really won't do what you tell me right fuck you then right well to hear the rest of your band tell it i've not talked to lynn about it but you guys held your ground didn't give an inch and eventually won the grudging respect of that crowd oh yeah i mean we were wild like that yeah they i mean in some respects love us or hate us you weren't going to get songs like that from the average band through we were i mean looking back on it now there weren't many bands that messed with the bpm like we did i mean we were in we in some respects we didn't care because we were willing to take risks in some respects we did care because we were willing to take risks right musically musical risks Mm -hmm. and um you know and maybe that was also to uh, a bit of a different thing with you know, in uh, in all of the bands that I've been with, they've all been willing to take musical risks. Um, and some bands have, you know, I mean, Mary My Hope was willing to take the chemis- chemical risks. Right. And, um, God, sometimes I, I wonder about, like, the bands that are willing to take the chemical risks if kind of over the course of time that we, you know, build the tolerance to the drugs that our willingness to risk <laughs> can lessen. Um, does I mean? Uh, it's almost like as soon as you need money, uh, we hedge our bets. And yeah. and I mean, I'll say this: I mean, to that particular band, that particular version of James Hall, credit. Like, we were interested in what we were interested in, and we weren't. We just didn't beg to be loved. Yeah. Um, we uh, we weren't willing to just kiss ass in order to sell records. Maybe we knew in our guts that that we would find that highly disorienting. Right. And because at that point, like if, and I mean, I know that there's the argument. Well, as soon as you release your music, as soon as the music leaves your head, you're it's already a compromise. But for us. I mean, the the payoff was the process. The payoff was making this music that we considered wild and kind of wicked and kind mm-hmm. of messed up. Yeah, and um, that was our interest. Right. You know, yes, songs, good songs. We love great songs. Right. You know, we celebrate them. But where it came to, um, you know, okay, well, it's got to have this angle to it. Okay, you got to make it sound like Beck. Mm-hmm. Or you got to make it sound like it could go on a Spin Doctors album, or you, you know, there's a there's a pressure in the major labels to play along with that. Yeah, to play ball. To play ball, and I don't know. Maybe it's my own immaturity, but like for me, I would find that if I did that, and okay, and then I and then what? We get a good response from it. Okay, well now who are we? Right, you've been pulled off your what you know, pulled off, and not even what we know, but pulled off of our 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 principles, right? <laughs> our so, convictions. 
The Geffen deal, there was, you made a record for Geffen, but it's like the Heraclitus River. You can't step into the same river twice. You, you don't get to make a record for the same label twice because there was a full personnel change between your first record and second record with Geffen. Right? Well, actually, um, we made one record for Geffen. Uh-huh. It started the process of like a million demos. Right, right. And so, and that was, I would call it the demo to death period. I was, um, I was under a lot of pressure and, um, and I had, you know, I'd had some success in music and some deals and things like that, but I still didn't really feel like, um, I had, um, any skills for like dealing with that, like kind of responsibility and, um, and you know, at, at that particular point, my my consciousness was I was, it was a, a lot of it was riddled with fear. Um, you know, being on Geffen, you know, I or we as a team made a sort of record that we wanted to make, but once basically that touring cycle had finished and we hadn't really come out, you know, with any economic headway or or footprint headway or um we didn't really sell a lot of records then it was you know okay new a in our direction and um and there was a lot of talk about okay well we should put you with eric valentine i think that he'd be good and so who's he he's the guy that did smash mouth and um and matchbox 20 and i'm like all right i don't know who you are but my job is to make Smash Mouth and Matchbox 20. It's to, my job is to marginalize those bands. That's why I'm here. You realize that, right? You know me, right? And uh, at that point in time, that's what I saw the role to be. Is that like, okay, I'm not part of that. I had a very, very us and them mindset. Sure. Well, everybody did in the 90s, right? Well, I don't know if everybody did. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they liked me. They, <laughs> but, yeah. but as far as like where I was at, I was deeply insecure. Yeah. And, and not very collaborative really not at all collaborative in the in the the crafting of songs or working on songs and and it's just very controlling and um in that you know what did, what did i learn i learned what did i learned growing up don't talk don't feel don't trust right right those are survival things right yeah and then they are they work to get you to graduation day perhaps <laughs> right but after that they have a propensity for ruining friendships yeah. and relationships and so carrying that through the bands that i'd had since then meant that you know a lot of these bands got to an impasse and that i lived with a lot of anxiety over feeling okay well i got talent but i don't have any way of really carrying any of this talent or gift to a win Right. Well, you can't really as an individual. It has to be a team effort, right? I think I've learned that. How how many years did you chase that rabbit? Well, that uh, so it was probably three, maybe. Yeah. Maybe maybe not quite three. Yeah. Less than three. But no. So no record was ever made though. Like there was demos and demos and demos and demos and then. And then here comes the trick. 
Yeah. So Here Comes the Trick was born out of a lot of those songs that were kind of flying around as demos. Right. And Here Comes the Trick was made after the Geffen deal had finalized. And, um, I mean, and let's not forget that I'd been through, let's see, Mio, John, Todd, Ted. Uh, I mean, how many Anar? Like, I mean, like a slew of different A&R guys, each with an idea, different some visions. with them with a lot of love for, yeah. for, 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 for us personally, but, you know, uh, in a marketplace, okay, let's not hold it, in a marketplace where Smash Mouth is selling out arenas. Right. In a marketplace where corn is on radio. So, and Limp Biscuits blowing up the airwaves. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got to remember that that's kind of what's working at that point in time, and we are maybe close to it, but maybe not really either. Yeah, not really. So, so when you say the Geffen deal finalized, you mean it ended? Basically, I was dropped. So, tell I me got, what that phone call was like. Okay, it was basically um, at some point Jordan Sure uh, ended up with the Geffen imprint and the responsibility of running that successful label. Um, Jordan Schur, I believe it brought Limp Biscuit to, to Interscope. And uh, I think that, you know, when it came down to listening to the demos and the things that I'd done, he just said, I'm not feeling it. And so I was dropped. Who told you? I believe Donnie. Donnie Graves, my manager at that time. So, and, but. Was that a relief after all that? In some respects it was because I, uh, I, my interest wasn't really in at least what was popular at Geffen. Sure. Or what was succeeding at Interscope. Right. You know, this is no offense to the people that are, you know, you know, successful at Limp Biscuit and, you know, and, the, and those other kind of tool and those other bands. Mm-hmm. But like, in terms of where my interest was, yeah, it was, it was, it was too varied. Well, let's flash back to the house with Sven and Steve and Chris. You weren't listening to records, anything like any of that. And as you, if you run on the list of what you were interested in at that time, it's all kind of not stuff that is commercially successful, you know? I mean, between the years of your first show with Mary My Hope and the time that Kurt Cobain dies, something that happens once in a lifetime maybe never happens, which is that there's an explosion of interest in underground music. Yeah. But gradually that gets commodified. Right. And then steered back into what would be considered pop music, Sugar Ray... Um, Smash Mouth, and, right? And then we see this sort of return of the pop diva with Britney Spears. Yeah. And at that point, it's time to go back to your Coltrane and your early psychedelic furs and your Talk Talk records and go. All right, this is what I liked about music: not trying to make right older men happy. Right. So, who did you make? Here comes the trick for. Um. So. Uh, we made Here Comes a Trick for ourselves. 
Was that self-financed record? Or? Uh, it was self-financed. Um, uh, uh, it was uh, grant and uh, and a lot of belief. A lot of belief in was, what we were doing. Was Michael Jerome on that record? Michael Jerome played drums on that record. Yeah. And Mark Hutner played guitar on that record. And, I mean, it was... You know, making it work schedule-wise, monetarily, but we went up to Nashville to do that one, and that was at Jay's house in Knob Hill, and um, a really, really good and powerful memory of of recording there with him, and 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 how that was tracked, and and how rapidly things took shape, and uh, without the burden of other people's expectations, you mean? Really. Yeah. Truly, and uh, and you know, there's a there's a there's a shriek in um, in the first song on um, "Here Comes a Trick" called "Permanent Solution," but there's a kind of a shriek after the music gets distilled and, and silent, um, and it goes on for I don't know, ten seconds or something like that, and and I remember Jay coming back with the mixes from that. So we'd, you know, we recorded it and tracked it and Grant and me were up there listening to the mixes and kind of hearing it. But oftentimes we'd either go over to Jay's house when he was ready at noon or Jay would come by in his car. His car had a pretty good stereo in it. So we'd listen to the mixes at his car stereo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he says, man, when I got up this morning and, you know, I had that first cigarette and I'm listening to Permanent Solution and you just got that scream right there. It's like, man... That's what it's all about right there, man. <laughs> and to hear his perspective on that. Because, I mean, we were just doing the wildest music that we could at that age. Right. And um, and I think it still is an outstanding moment. Uh, I mean, the Pleasure Club, you know, I have a friend of mine that that's been kind enough to review it but he just said he's like james would you like my honest opinion i said sure he's like james you may never in your life be a part of a band or of something that is that special and i had to chuckle and kind of agree because in pleasure club doesn't have any trouble being wild yeah we don't have any. We don't have any trouble being wild. We got wild to burn, right? And part of that is is just everybody's comfort level in their instrument and how they how they compose in the moment on stage. Mm-hmm. Pleasure Club is a sort of band that has a a high balance of musical training and preparation and then a, an inspiration to match. Right. And that's one of those sweet spots. Mm-hmm. And so I can play guitar in that band and it's great. And I cannot play guitar in that band and it's great. I can play horn and harmonica and be crazy and be wild and be impulsive and it all works somehow in the sonic landscape. You've never stopped. Like, so... The Geffen thing finally ends. The, the Here Comes a Trick record gets made with Pleasure Club. And Pleasure Club has been on and off and on again 
since then, but like there's always been other stuff. Um, you have never not been in a band, as best I can tell. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in third grade, I probably wasn't, but I was. I was starting to become aware of what a band is. <laughs> right. You, starting. I was wanting to belong in third grade. Right. You're a dad, right? Yes. How old are you? I am fifty-two. My son is uh, twenty-three. Man, is he a musician? He is. He is. He operates under the handle Grant Atlanta Grandma. It's what kind of stuff is it? It's good stuff. You should hear it. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. Check it out. I I um uh I mean I I'd I'd love to take credit, but all I really did was just play with him. Yeah. You know. We just we were you know, I was growing up too. Mm-hmm. And and you know, whatever he was interested in seemed interesting to me too. A big part of of, of parenting young musicians is, is just allowing them to realize that it's possible to do something. Yeah. Because I was told, and you were told probably, that you don't play rock and roll for a living. That's not a thing you do. Yeah. You know, that's... Well, but how many parents have told their kids you can't climb a tree for a living? Do you ever meet a tree surgeon? All the time. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean... Right. <laughs> It's just there's a certain point where it's our responsibility to play with our children, and yeah. I don't mean like literally play music with my child. I mean I can he and I can and mm-hmm. and we've done it, but but in terms of just like the the interaction, and the right. time, right? I mean, you know, as I think about like the years after Katrina, you know, and then kind of working with books for Africa and the value of reading. You know the the three years after Katrina, two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Really, the only thing normal about those years was reading Harry Potter every night at seven p.m. to him. How old was he then? Eight. Eight. Yeah. So that was a big change for him at eight years old. Yeah, that's a big trauma to be uprooted by a storm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're journaling, yeah, as a form of almost of meditation, yeah. yeah. Still play yeah. music all the time. Still play music plenty, yeah. yeah. I mean, and and what I like about it is is that you know I'm not trying to you know get in the running for the Warped tour if they're doing that anymore, or you know playing a bunch know. of VFW yeah. halls and you know. So I I'm glad I'm not in a bar environment all the time. Yeah. And uh, it's not that bars are bad, but they use them on jails for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> but when, um, uh, you know, when I, I do feel like I get a lot of cool musical opportunities and, um, and I've grown as a collaborator, which I never really very much was. I mean, even in, in Pleasure Club, I mean... I tried to step into that role, but I still really wasn't truly comfortable with it until mm-hmm. years later. Yeah. But, I mean, maturity and security are certainly essentials. I think if one wants to get, at least put it this way, if I wanted to get to my best songs, 
those things had to happen. And that meant letting down my guard for working with other people and, and trusting that wherever the song goes, probably going to be okay. Yeah. I usually wind these things up with 10 questions. Okay. Um, and uh, they're loosely based on the Bernard Pivo questions from, um, he's a French radio host. They so use those same questions on um, inside the actor's studio, but I have my own version of them. If okay. you want to jump into that. So okay, it's getting kind of late for you. Yeah. The first question is, um, what is the fondest memory you have of a meal that you've had? Great question. Um, the fondest memory I have of a meal that I had was that meal I mentioned earlier on in Minneapolis. Right. After having been sick for about nine or ten days. On tour. And touring. And starting to get my appetite back, and after having walked into about seven restaurants and about facing and turning around, and this is a little word of advice: if you're walking into a restaurant and the bar manager's yelling at the waitress, and the hostess is angry at the bartender, and the bus guy is like dropping dishes everywhere, and it doesn't smell good, turn around. Life is short. <laughs> right. But this place um, had was filled with East Africans, but I went in and enjoyed the most delicious plate of noodles completely unnoticed because there was a Lakers game on the television and everybody had crowded around to watch this yeah. game. This is in Minneapolis, though. This is in Minneapolis, and everybody's yeah. was pulling for the Lakers. That's they interesting. pulling for the Lakers. Yes, it was wild. And, the, and it was a Somalian... You know, did you did you know what to population. order when you walked in? I did not. Um, in fact, I told the uh, the the man working the register there that I didn't know what to order, and he looked at me. And he just like sit down. I'll bring you something, and that <laughs> was so a, great. that was the rightest thing. <laughs> that was the righteous thing. Yeah, man. Um, second question: What is the most frightened you've ever been? Probably the last days of uh, a friend's drinking career or my wife's drinking career. The final days of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, a lot of exposure. When I've been around people in the last stages of the drinking, like you're describing, never mind that I was that person at one time, that I was out of control. But when you're in it, when, when when it's a first person thing and you're the person who's fucking up it just feels like everybody's being a pain in the ass you know <laughs> like why won't people just leave me alone mm -hmm. but when you're on the sidelines or the back seat man um, the level of vulnerability and chaos and unpredictability is horrible mm -hmm. it's like living with a monkey who has a box of knives you know, <laughs> anything could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Have you done any work on any of that? Have you done Al-Anon or anything? Oh, yeah. I have um, I have uh, a few different good things going on. I've uh, been in, uh, I mean, I went to Al-Anon for um, a good bit after Katrina, for a little while after Katrina. Um, but I didn't really realize 
what level of, of character defects I was carrying f around with me until about seven years ago. And then that that's when I got into Al-Anon and got really serious about getting a sponsor and um, yeah. asking what my part is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've, 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 you know, thought about it over the lifespan and, you know, um, if there is a God, he's always made sure I'd have at least one alcoholic around me my <laughs> whole life. <laughs> and, and, um, I, I'm, and just, I'm really thankful for that. I've got to interrupt for one second because I heard this conversation on this other podcast I really like called Dopey today where these guys were talking about the higher power thing and, and the, the thing that you're told if you're like me and you're agnostic and you walk into a meeting and you're like, I don't know about this God shit. They go, just as long as you understand that it's not you. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah. yeah. That you can that's right. Whatever God you want. That's that's my limit of experience with it is that God is not, I'm not him or her. But you just said, if there is a God, he always seems to put an alcoholic in my life and I'm kind of scratching my head going, you know, James, <laughs> yeah. you might be at the driver's seat on this one, man. Yeah. But it's amazing. Um, I well, feel like I get those people in my life as karmic payback for having been that person. Well, I get them in my life as a... As a mm, well, as a, as, a, as, a, as a teacher. Yeah. You know, in the form of a teacher, in the form of an angel. Mm. And, and how am I to sit here and say that, like, you know, okay, Grant is not a... a, a force of divine you know uh, inspiration in my life so i mean it's you know all i know of god is that i'm not him or her right and that people have a version of hell or heaven on this earth yes and that the only angels i've ever seen are actual human beings yeah of all the things in your life that you've lost what is the thing that you regret losing the most I have what I need. Yeah. Yeah. I I, th I mean, I think for me to really truly be in the moment and and in practicing extreme presence means that there's there's nothing that I have regret over all of it all of it has worked all of it works out that's so, a very high level of acceptance I aspire to that but I've not achieved it well you know in 2005 that helped me a lot in 2005 when it dawned on me that we have three feet of water in our home in New Orleans no matter how I felt about it. Right. Doesn't matter how you feel about it, it's gonna happen. Doesn't matter how I feel about that reality. If there is a universe was, you know, the, the paperwork was stamped, passed off across four or five desks in the bureaucracy of the cosmos. Right. And approved three feet of water, forty five twelve South Durban, New Orleans, Louisiana. Did you own that house? 
You're renting? Renting. But when did, when did I, you decide to leave? Was there, did you like wade through water to get out of town? Like how did No, no. We were, you know, let's not forget my son was eight. I don't think that that would have been wise exactly. Right. Um, don't get me wrong. I did not want to leave. I understand. But, um, but, uh, we left on that Saturday, uh, got, uh, about an hour outside of town. We were in an A-frame that was originally built in order to grow marijuana. So we weren't really certain how it was going to hold up in a hurricane that was con- continuing to increase categories. Yeah. And then um, opted to go up uh, with friends from that home, all uh, caravan up to Memphis, my friend the Williams house up in, um, up in Memphis. And we moved into a basically a house that didn't have any furniture in it so we moved all the patio furniture from outside inside with us and we're grateful for it it's but it was kind of funny like look at it oh so here we are okay (laughs) great indoors yeah well it is a beautiful home but like okay we're on patio furniture inside and so that was a, a a remarkable experience but that was i mean memphis was very very good to us in fact the the as word started getting out that that we weren't likely to be returning to New Orleans anytime soon, there was some activity in the neighborhood that you know okay well look these people are going to need food so we had you know I think every Monday night for a month we had red beans and rice and people <laughs> people run by everything that they thought we would love to have and it was great. That's, that's they planned really... the menu for us. We didn't have to cook for dinner, so it was almost like like a like a like a wake yeah it kind of was a wake for new orleans it was i mean we're glad that the home that we were in was used to help it was used by the church that was adjacent to it to resettle families back in the broadmoor area for at least a while yeah and so that was good use of our space there but it's you know i try not to go back to it but but you know there are moments when i'll go back to kind of looking at our life there and uh and basically it was a life that we knew that we weren't ever to really return to yeah and um i mean i don't know it's you see your child's toys kind of scattered all over the floor and kind of every you know picture and photo and art from kindergarten and all of that stuff in a house and you kind of like okay this house doesn't have anybody in it anymore yeah and uh but then to kind of recognize that that is your life yeah it can be kind of heavy and um so a couple times i get back and and walk in there and you know got a little bit spooked by just okay we lived this way we lived here for this time and this is not returned but you know and there's the the, there's many parables of two people, you know, working side by side in the field together, and one's called away. Yeah. And they weren't talking about, you know, the rapture or, or you know, the last days and uh, signs and wonders. They were talking about modern life. Yeah. What that means is that none of us are really guaranteed anything so 
when you say it's good to see you, you should mean it. Yeah. Next question. Tell me about a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger. Oh, God. Um, probably the um, the care that was shown to us in Memphis yeah. was was, uh, was distinct and um, and heartfelt, and a lot of it was just food. Yeah. But, I mean, even even in in Atlanta in probably 1987 or 88 when I was working temp jobs, construction temp jobs, um, I think at one point in time I was wandering around and I was hungry and Will Rogers saw me and Hey, James, what are you doing? I was like, oh, looking for something to eat. It's like, oh, man, I'll buy you something to eat. You're going to Church's Chicken. So we went over to Church's Chicken. Yeah. And Will Rogers bought me a nice box of chicken. <laughs> that guy, man. Yeah. <laughs> Righteous dude. Yeah, Will, sweetie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's one thing I remember. But, I mean, there's many, many, many things. I mean, I mean every day. Yeah. What's your favorite place to gig? I like uh, gigging in a coffee house. And I know that that, for many years, being James Hall and James Hall Band, that's where every promoter wanted to put me. And I was like, no, not a coffee house. We want to be loud. But at this point in time right now, I think a coffee house is fine. Is there a particular one that you love? Um, I like Eddie's Attic. I like, uh, I mean, I've had great gigs in inordinate places. Mm -hmm. And then I've had terrible gigs at at places where they would be celebrated. Yeah. CBGB's does not stand out in my mind as like, oh, what a great gig. It was, you know, it felt like you know being one of eight bands on a bill i think cbgb's is a lot like mississippi in that it's a great place to have behind you i right. played cbgb's you played cbgb's right you know i can say i played there before i was legally old enough to walk in the door but i, I don't want to play there tomorrow exactly right it's like be, being from mississippi like where are you from oh i'm i'm from greenville mississippi like right. oh shit you know <laughs> right it informs you it's part of who you are. I'm glad I don't have to live in those places now. Right. Speaking of that, uh, visa and income considerations aside, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? In the moment. I'll take it. Yeah. In the moment. <laughs> well, just, I mean, after kind of being in New Orleans, which is probably one of the coolest cities in the world. Yeah. And... Having you know a lot of options available, and and being in Atlanta and Nashville, and spending a lot of time in Los Angeles and London, and I mean, all those places are great, but like being in the moment is really where it's at. And and I mean, for me, 
I mean, I don't really own a house now. Yeah. So I uh, I think I'd rather at this point have the economic flexibility. Right. To, to respond in the moment. Yeah. Um, do you have an ideal musical instrument? And if so, do you already own it? Yes and yes. I already own them. I already yeah. <laughs> I have more guitars than I can possibly play at once. <laughs> um and um and and I do find that my life is often a process of taking inventory of what I have and and is it maybe better to give what I have away to somebody I love and care about. Mhm. And uh, so I, um, you know, I, I do find instruments inspiring and, that, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, I've got a good song or two in there. But, um, but I mean, just really being able to have uh, almost anything uh, that has some heart and inspiration or feel to it, it's awesome, you know, but I... You know, I have instruments that are worth a lot of money, and then I have instruments that are worth a lot of money to me. <laughs> right. Is there an instrument that you've had that you no longer have that you miss? Uh, I do miss a uh, a uh, Telecaster that I had at Western Kentucky University. You know, that Telecaster seems to be the guitar that people sell, and then they go, oh, man, I wish I still had that guitar. Yeah. That's the, you're the fourth person that said Telecaster? Yeah, that was a, that's one I, I miss. Um, but, you know, also, I had a Takamini Electric uh, as a kid in high school. I mean, I don't know. It's like a, maybe getting my first guitar back. I don't know. It's like all of those are right. potentials. They're all gone. Yeah, but um, but I mean that all of them presented a learning point though too, right? So like with the Telecaster, you know, I'd switch the pickups out in it and then sold the originals, and it was just like way too hot, way too clinky. The right. guitar was lightweight, and with the pickups it had in it, it was perfect as is. Why did I mess with that? But I learned. <laughs> yeah, you learn. I learned. So I've been I got doing rid of that. I do a lot of drum kit refurbishments. I get shitty spray paint off of drum parts and fix old drum kits, and it's my penance for the drums I screwed up when I was a kid. You know? <sighs> I do that a bit too. Then, yeah. If you could perform with any band or performer that you love for one song, and at a show as a guest, what what would that? song and band to be oh i would um i'll tell you what i would and this is this is going back a bit but i mean um sean smith who you may remember from satchel and brad um and his solo records i remember him from uh Grant, me, Lynn, Sterling opening up for Satchel as they were opening up for Better Than Ezra. Right. And, um, but Sean Smith and I got to know each other a bit. And at some point after Katrina, he gave me this record that he had made called Let It All Begin. And 
that record uh, I really connected with when right after Katrina, we're, we're up here, we're living in my sister-in-law's basement, and I'm trying to acclimate to a real winter and finding a place to live. And a lot of the themes on that album are really about uh, trying to find home and find a way home. And I don't think I've learned, and Nick Didia produced it here in Atlanta years before, but I, I would love to be at a show where either I could witness him playing that album because it really connected with me and, and helped me kind of get used to the idea that this is okay, this is your home now. And um, and perhaps even perform on songs too as well. Now, I've made that mistake a few times before where I listen to a record a bunch and I think I know it. And then it comes to actually gigging with that artist and kind of like, I don't know any of this. This is not what I thought I was hearing. Right. <laughs> um, it happened with, with Robert Roth, another Seattle artist. Um, but Sean Smith, I would certainly love. And Sean Smith has passed on now. Yeah. And I would I would have loved to have had the chance to get up and play with him. Also, I'd love to get up and play with Mary My Hope. But with Sean Smith, oh, God. Any song on that Let It All Begin album, anything would work for me. Yeah. The uh, with with Mary My Hope, I mean anything would work for them too as well. Yeah. You get a chance to get them stayed. Steve, our drummer, has struggled with uh, back uh, pain, and um, and so I'm still communicating with him on the regular in the hopes that he gets to the bottom of it and is able to start playing drums again, and then we can do a show. But I would love to do a show with Mary My Hope again. Yeah. Because it's the experience of Mary My Hope as 50-year-olds will probably be vastly different than his yeah. 20-somethings. Last question. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I think you sort of already kind of intuited what it is. But if you could imagine a taxi that can go anywhere in space or time, it's not constrained by how we understand time or space. But you can go anywhere. You get in the taxi. You say to the taxi driver, hey, man, take me home. Where is home? Home is in the moment. It is. It's, I mean, I'd love to say New Orleans because I got a lot of love there. Home is in Nashville because I got my mother and father still there and still alive. But home is really, truly, it's in the moment. It's not ahead. It's not down the road. It's not in 1994. Right. It's right now. Yeah. And, uh, and I struggled with home because, you know, in, in losing a home, yeah. one gets really sort of attached and we get emotional about stuff and and you know kind of the you know the was wisely put by this nigerian man that said he's like you know when katrina happened you realize that all you have is each other yeah and that's a powerful powerful realization 
I mean, this has been great. I'm really grateful you were able to do it. Me too. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, that's episode number 49, our interview with James Hall. Man, that's a solid, solid dude, and he has been at this longer than just about anybody I know. Just relentless and also full of positivity. I find that really inspiring. Thanks to our erstwhile producer, Jake Craig, or Jake sends me show notes after every show to help me make it better. So if the show is better now than it was the first time you heard it, that's due mostly, almost entirely to Jake. Jake is currently working on our YouTube channel, which should be up the next week or so, and you'll be able to hear every episode on YouTube. If for some reason you don't like Spotify or whatever your podcast app that you normally use is, it'll be on YouTube. And eventually there'll be some video content if someone can convince me to step in front of a camera, which I'm not really keen on. Thanks to Gene Wolfolk in the Powder Room. Gene and the Powder Room provide all the music you hear in these episodes that aren't song explication episodes. Most of the songs are from their album Curtains, which is their first record, which I didn't play on. But the middle section there where I do the mental health announcements is from the album Lucky, which I did play on. Um, They're a great band. You can go to thepowderroom.bandcamp.com and check out all of their music and, and download it and throw them a few bucks. It's worthwhile. They're a great band. Also, Gene has a new band called Dream Tent. Dream 10 is slowly building a web presence and their songs popping up all the time and as soon as they're ready and I get permission from Gene, I'm going to blast links out to Dream 10 stuff everywhere because I love Gene. He's a solid guy. He's a good friend and he's a great musician. Thanks to Heil Audio for the great deal I got on these two PR40 microphones that I use on every interview. I think they sound amazing. I used to use the PR40 in the studio for snare drum, kick drum, and bass cabinet. I also have now discovered that they're great broadcast mics. If you're thinking about upgrading the mics on your podcast, I highly recommend the PR40. It's a good, affordable mic that sounds amazing. All right. I guess that brings us to the end. Um, Thanks for listening. Um, I hope everybody's shaking off whatever holiday blues they might have experienced in their doing their best to embrace this new year um i'm i'm in an inexplicably good place i hope you are too so until we speak again take care of yourself be kind to yourself ask for help if you need it go see live music support your favorite band and remember loud guitars save lives (laughs) 